Today we're talking about advances in nutrition, the complexity surrounding chemical sensitivities, and getting to the bottom of common health and wellness myths. Welcome to episode 13 with the former CEO of both GNC and Garden of Life, Greg Horn. You are listening to Len Jones Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at TrueFace.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you're going to learn today. What's up, party people? We are back and better than ever. And by better than ever, I mean I just got back from a conference in Dallas where I was surrounded by remarkable individuals that have taken their dreams and turned them into actions, which is a major key of this podcast. But on the flip side, after five days of traveling, my body feels awful as my on-the-road nutrition game is not that good. Maybe that's because I'm 26 now and, well, hangovers are like a thing. Uh, But after speaking with one of the most influential thought leaders in the world of health and wealth, I have seriously taken a deep interest in nutrition and what you can do to prepare your body for the long haul. And if you're new to the podcast, our mission here is twofold. To educate millennials by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life. And second, to have all of my friends in life that are making moves to meet my other friends in life that are making moves to create one giant community of extraordinary people. Now, according to surveys, there's been a major shift in awareness and behavior among young people showing an increasing interest in preventive measures being taken in order to live a wellness-oriented lifestyle. So I asked Greg to come on the show and share because he's just about as good as it gets on the topic of nutrition after having dedicated his entire life to it. Greg Horn has two decades of experience in developing and managing companies associated with personal health, nutrition, and environmental sustainability. He is currently the CEO of Specialty Nutrition Consulting, which is focused on commercializing nutrition innovation and leading the emerging market market for effective nutrition products that have IP protection and clinical evidence of efficacy. He has co-founded and managed several branded nutrition and healthy living companies, including brands such as Celsius, Brand New Brands, Attune Foods, Excella Health, Wiki Foods, and Nutrition Capital Network. On top of that, Greg is the former CEO of both Garden of Life, which is currently the top brand in the natural channel, and General Nutrition Centers, aka GNC, the world's largest specialty retailer of nutrition products. Which which added 100 million per year to profitable revenue for 11 years in a row during his tenure in management. Greg is also the author of two books, the first being the bestseller, Living Green, and his most recent, Living Well, Six Pillars for Living Your Best Life. On today's podcast, Greg touches on a variety of both personal and controversial subjects that are happening today and what he believes will occur in the future surrounding topics like nutritional breakthroughs, navigating the fad diets, and how running a $100 million business is a lot like running a garden. Now, before we start, I must say, if you enjoy this podcast and want to support future conversations like these, please leave a positive review. It means a lot. And so without further ado, let's jump into it. We are live here with Greg Horn. Greg, how are you doing? Doing fantastic, Ian. How are you? I am doing phenomenal. And Greg, I can't even begin to describe how excited and and grateful I am for your time. I mean, 
if there was such thing as a health and wellness video game, it's like we just skipped to the final boss, like the last level. I mean, you have two decades of experience in developing and managing companies that are associated with personal health, nutrition, and environmental sustainability. I mean, you have a deep passion for this stuff. Where did you first kind of get that drive that you wanted to be in health and wellness? Well, I've been interested in this category since I was a kid, really. I mean, when I was about 15 and a half years old or so, I read an old paper back book that my mom had up on a on a shelf in our in our in our living room and it was called Sugar Blues and the book was already old at the time it was from a health food store you know probably already 10 years old by then and it talked about how sugar was you know eroding our health and I did an experiment on myself when I was 15 and cut back on sugar you know stopped drinking sodas and eating candy bars and eating the kind of cereal that turns your milk colors and I felt so much better after a break-in period of probably a couple of weeks that I really got that visceral connection between what you put in your body and how you look and perform and feel. Um, and so with the certainty that you can only have probably when you're that age, I decided that that's really where I wanted to go with my professional life. And so um, I was interested in the business side of it. So um, after business school, I went into um, marketing and product development at GNC and really fell in love with this idea of being able to measure and prove that what you put in your body has a, a real tangible impact on your health and how you perform and how you look and how you feel. And that's been kind of, that was uh, many, many, many years ago, as you pointed out, and I still love it. I still learn something new every day. And that was the start starting point of my career. I know one thing you're super passionate about is you have a personal chemical sensitivity, which it seems like every single day you're constantly trying to learn more about it, get better at it. Could you share a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah. So that it first showed up when I was at GNC and I was on top of the world. You know, I had, I had had the corner office in the company that I wanted to work at probably the rest of my life. And I had the new carpet and I had the new wall coverings and the new furniture. It was a brand new building that we had remodeled and uh, things were going great. Uh, and But what I found out once I sensitized those new flame retardants and the formaldehyde coming out of furniture, um, it was making me sick. And uh, so I developed something called multiple chemical sensitivities. And uh, I had to take pretty radical action to get better. It's not the kind of thing you totally recover from for you know 100%, but it is manageable uh, if you remove those things from your life. So again, very viscerally, I got into the green, healthy living space. Luckily, I had access to the you know biggest experts in the world from my professional life. And I changed my clothes and how they cleaned them. And I changed my furniture and I changed my mattress and I changed the food that I ate and the things that I drank and the, and you know, just about everything the the, the personal care products that I could no longer use. And I built a new house. I moved out of my house and I built a different house. I changed geography. So it was a pretty radical change. Uh, and I'm really glad I did it because and it made the difference for me in being, you know, productive, happy, thriving person again, um, or, uh, or really not. And I didn't want to give all that up. So uh, it, it's something that I feel very passionate about and have to do. 
uh, for personal health necessity. And so my expertise in my first book, Living Green, was about this whole story. Um, it stems from that direct personal experience. I I didn't read about it in a book. I lived through it and experienced it and still do. Is there like a test that someone does for that? I mean, were you going through like a long period where you just didn't know what it was and you were just searching for answers? Oh, yes. I mean, usually people don't, you know, it's not that common. So or that commonly diagnosed. So you think it's just stress. And I did have a stressful job. Um, you know, you don't really think it's chemical sensitivity. When you first get chemical sensitivity, you probably think it's something else. And it's not commonly diagnosed on the first try. It certainly wasn't with me. Uh, so, so yes, but there's a cluster of symptoms that you have that when you're exposed to these chemicals all show up at the same time that is, um, you know, unmistakable and, and clear. It's just not, it's not commonly diagnosed on the first try when you go into a, you know, regular doctor. My, uh, my brother always had severe allergies growing up. And we never really knew what it was. We always assumed it was the cats. That's what my mom always said. And it turns out years later, he's actually allergic to mold. And there was mold in like the bathroom ventilation. And that's what was triggering <laughs> his allergies for years. <laughs> yeah. And the chemical sensitivities are a lot like allergies. Um, and so that's that's I hear stories like that all the time. It's a, it's a, it's pre, it's pretty common. And probably when he's away from it, he's fine, right? Yeah, he's totally fine. I'm like, all those times you've been kicking the cats out the house, man. Come on. What's going on? <laughs> those cats suffered in vain. So are you fascinated by a particular set of ingredients or chemical compounds? Like when you're home, are you just like reading books, learning about the newest stuff? Like are you, could you just get lost in learning about all of the ingredients and everything that goes into products, et cetera? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been really, really fortunate to be able to make a living at uh, creating uh, nutrition products that are based on the science of what I call effective nutrition. And effective nutrition, the way I define it is uh, nutritional substances, interventions from the diet or, or dietary supplements um, that can impact your specific health issues in specific ways. So it can actually be measured. And those measurements can be proved through, you know, actual, you know, testing, either through clinical trials or through you know, individual testing to find out whether your markers and your conditions have improved. So that's a lot different from the state of the art in some of, you know, nutrition supplement world where they're just kind of hoping for the best. Um, in, in, in the case of what I do, I am constantly surrounded by research in areas that interest me in this overall field of effective nutrition, because I think we're just starting to understand the potential that nutrition has to impact health. And the more we can measure it and the more that those measurements are you know, put to the test in clinical trials, the better our collective knowledge base grows about how we can actually use nutrition to address some of the most important health issues that we face. I've probably only seen an actual nutritionist like once in my life, maybe. Do you think that people should be routinely going to a nutritionist to understand what's going on? Well, it probably depends on your baseline. I mean, if you have a specific health issue that you're trying to address this nutritionally addressable, um, then it makes sense to have the advice of a trained nutritionist. Um, you know, if you're fine, then, um, you know, I don't know that how often that's really necessary if you're doing everything right already. Um, but most people aren't doing everything right. And it's funny because lots of times the people who make the most use out of nutrition science are the ones who are trying to actually get the most performance out of their bodies. So serious athletes, use nutritionists religiously. 
Uh, and then obviously on the other end of the spectrum, people who are sick and need to be on special diets or use nutrition as part of a therapy or a co-therapy to uh, make one, make a condition better or save their life. Uh, in the middle there, you know, you know that you're probably more typical than not. But nutrition impacts everything we do. And when I talk about effective nutrition, I'm really talking about a space in between uh, food and what we think of today as, as pharmaceuticals. There's a long gap between those in terms of the amount of science behind them. But there's also um, you know, a lot more science emerging in you know, coming from food towards dietary supplements. And so as it moves towards that more proven area, that's what I think about as um, effective nutrition. A lot of times, and, and something I try to really accomplish with this podcast is when people look at you and they look at your accomplishments, they think, oh my God, you know, I could never do that. You know, I could never found these companies, do all the different successful things you do. When you left UCLA, I saw you have an MBA from UCLA. What was that first step that kind of like got your foot in the door with whether it was GNC or any of those things, like what was that first step after college? Well, I, I did go to UCLA for for business school, and I I, uh, I I was studying business there, of course. And I actually worked for a couple of years um, after business school as outside of the field of nutrition. I always wanted, I always knew I wanted to be in the field of nutrition, um, but I wanted to get some experience in finance, uh, not knowing whether I would ever go back to that or not. But that's what I had studied, so. I was trained as a as a macroeconomic forecaster, so a quantitative economist, and I actually worked as an economist in a finance department for a big industrial company for the first couple of years of my life. And actually, that's a weird thing to say that that's what got me more into nutrition, but that convinced me that experience of working as an economist convinced, uh, it, which is a field that I really don't have the same passion for, <laughs> convinced me that I really wanted to spend my work time and my off time working on things that I actually cared about and was passionate about. And so I went to GNC after that with a full head of steam and a, a, uh, and, and a heart full of passion around learning everything I could about nutrition professionally and, and did what I guess people dream of doing, which is combining the thing that you're most interested in in life with the thing that you do to make a living. Like that, isn't that great that I was able to do that? And that's that's something that, you know, everybody's going to have different interests, but I was able to match those up. And I would say that that's one of my big breaks in life was being able to, to, to go to a company that was a, an emerging leader in a field that I cared so much about already. Do you feel like getting that MBA, do you feel like that truly set you up to learn a lot about business? Or do you think it was like, if there was certain things that you wish you could have learned in college that would have helped you in life, can you think of anything off the top of your head? You know, I think that when you get into business situations where there's other people involved, um, you know, a lot of college um, is, is based on, you know, performing well in college is based on individual performance, you know, getting a good grade on the test. And I think that pe most people have, have got a pretty good handle on how to study for a test and take it seriously and do well if that's your goal, right? And if you, if you don't care that much, you don't study quite as much, you don't do quite as well. The thing that is, is a little hard to imagine when you're in college is the degree to which your business career and functioning in an organization where there's a lot of other people involved initially that are your peers or, 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 or superiors, and then over time might be more your, your uh, employees, that you're supposed to manage and lead, um, you know, that interactivity and that, that human interaction is so important. And 
it's hard to, for that to be taught, but you know, if you're showing up late for class and if you're, and if you're not paying attention in class and if you're not interacting, you can't get away with that in, in corporate settings. You have to interact with people and you have, especially if you're going to be a leader, you have to be paying attention every minute and engaged and on time and all those things, um, that, that, you know, you think are so important to getting an A, um, aren't quite as important as the ability to be on point when you're at work. So it seems like your your history becoming a macroeconomic forecaster has probably helped a lot when it comes to your thought strategy when dissecting and learning about a business. I'm really curious because in your history, you know, you've come into companies and you look at it from that outside scale. What is it like your criteria and what are you looking for when you're looking at a company and and dissecting it to try to find out what would help it grow and, and where it needs improvement. Do you have a formula you use? Um, yeah, I've done quite a bit of that work where you're assessing businesses either you know for somebody who might be investing it or buying it, or for a turnaround. You know, somebody some something needs to start growing or improving. And where I always start with that in is what problem are they addressing? So a lot of companies are in business, but they're not really addressing an important enough problem. And so looking at the fundamental problem that they, that that company solved, and this would apply to a service industry as well as to a, a products or, you know, a, a goods type of industry. Uh, what are they in business to solve? And then the second thing that I would assess is how good is their solution? And so those sound like very basic fundamental questions, but they're the key to establishing whether the strategy and tactics that a company is using are appropriate. And you can do a lot of work on the wrong things before you assess whether their basic offering is, is right. So when I was at GNC, we repositioned the entire brand of GNC, redesigned the stores, redesigned the product lines uh, all around this idea of live well. The motto prior to that had been uh, where America shops for health and the problem we were solving wasn't where to shop for health in America because we were already in 29 countries and when we changed it to live well, it was living your best life. And so live well captured that. At Garden of Life, you know, it was about empowering extraordinary health. So the problem that we were solving was that these natural products that were effective and could have a real impact on people's health um, were, you know, hard to find, not easily available, hard to manufacture, especially organic and 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 non-GMO certified. And the the seeds of that were there when I got there. The founder had kind of started that that already, but really crystallizing that and and standing for something. And then that drives the rest of your activities. Then how good are your solutions? How good were GNC solutions? How good were Garner Life solutions? Those products can evolve. Those solutions can evolve towards answering that fundamental question in business. And you could ask those two questions about just about any type of business. And if you if you look at it with fresh eyes, um, you can make the kind of adjustments to what kind of problem you want to solve with the solutions that you're offering. Whenever I read about super successful entrepreneurs, 
a lot of the times they say that some of their best friends are the people that can look them in the eye and say, this is terrible. What the heck are you doing? Versus always saying, oh, this is great. <laughs> For sure. I mean, that, that is, that is um, if, if you're not getting honest feedback and you know, you're, it's, it's, you're not, you're not in a position to actually affect change and grow. Um, and you know, when you're, when you're running a big company or even a medium sized company, you, you, you want the negative feedback, right? You want people to tell you what they really think. And you want people to feel comfortable enough with you that they're bringing you the issues and bringing you the problems. If you stop getting that feedback, it means you're not really leading anymore either because they think you're not going to listen to them or they've given up themselves. And so, so I've always viewed that customer and employee feedback as kind of the lifeblood of improving a business and keeping it growing so that you, you know, because that means that people, you have enough of a trust relationship and they have enough of a confidence in you that they're willing to give you that kind of feedback. So, so negative feedback can be really good. And it seems like, you know, no matter how good you are, no matter how amazing of a forecaster you are and all of the different things you've taken into considerations to make a, a, a some sort of idea happen, sometimes it just fails, right? Like sometimes you just got it wrong. You took a shot. Can you reflect on a time maybe in your career that, you know, you learned from a significant failure that ended up leading to a breakthrough? Well, I mean, I would say that, that, um, you know, I was a, I was a health expert. I was leading the biggest health and nutrition company in the world. And I was totally blindsided by the fact that our new office building, which was really super nice, you know, could have a major negative impact on my own personal health. So, you know, that's a failure of, I guess, recognition or, you know, that's what the definition of being blindsided is you didn't see it coming. And, you know, it took me years and an entire change of almost everything in my life to be able to address that. And, you know, it would have been great in retrospect if I had brought in health experts in the design of the building, even though we're nutrition experts, to, you know, avoid that from happening in the first place because, you know, I had the corner office. But um, so, so, you know, there's, there's probably other examples of, you know, business situations that didn't work out, but probably the biggest one I could think of that I turned a, 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 a giant lemon of being sick. I couldn't go into other people's offices or work basically indoors for over a year. Um, and that's how I became more entrepreneurial. Now I can, but I've turned that into, you know, I wrote a book about it to help other people that became a bestseller. And fortunately for me, I've been able to, you know, focus on what I really do the best and share the knowledge with the people and become a, a, a well-known speaker and author and thinker in the field of improving your health. But I came at it through, you know, a, a personal crisis. The personal crisis, though, ended up sparking this whole book, all this information you've spread out to people. And I'm sure you get tons and tons of messages of people that are hitting you up after reading your story and reading your book. Like, oh, my God, like this is incredible. Oh, I do. I would almost say like it sounds ironic, but, you know, lucky I was lucky to be sick. <laughs> that's, that sounds weird. And you can only say it after you're not sick anymore. Right. But um but it, it it's totally true with everything you've done. Like what gets you the most like just giddy? You're like a 12 year old that's getting ice cream for the first time. You're just so fired up and excited. What brings that excitement into your life for a man that's done everything you've done? Like, cause I mean, I'm sure 
the highs, like you, you've been through so many different highs, like at this point in your life, what kind of reignites that flame? Every single day. And I have to tell you, um, I learn something new in this field every single day. I wake up at about five in the morning. I go in my office and I'm, I'm fired up about learning more things, doing the kind of work I do, which is creating these kind of effective nutrition products. I work till about seven and I go for a, a couple mile walk and I do either a Pilates or a weightlifting session after that. And then I'm right back at it. And I do that till about four o'clock in the afternoon, take a swim all day, every day. I love working in this field of effective nutrition. I'm looking at the coolest stuff in mitochondrial energy production, which is the little energy factories in your cells that create the energy that powers your basically powers life. I'm working in the field of detoxification, the whole bodily processes, and especially in your liver and phase two enzymes that improve the detoxification processes that are in your body. Uh, I'm looking at uh, allergen tolerance uh, and improving or reducing the chances of of kids getting life-threatening food allergies. I have a project in that area that's absolutely fascinating, immune health. I'm looking at gut health, how, how to improve bioavailability of nutrients. Uh, you know, I have a, people read my book and they take some products that I've worked on and I hear stories of life changes, people who have lost lots of weight, people who have had, you know, been able to just really turn around their life, how they see themselves, all their health markers, hearing those stories from people, like that's what I get to do for a living. And I never get tired of it. I never get tired of talking about it. I never get tired of thinking about it. And I don't go home tired. Right. You mentioned you do Pilates and swimming. Would you say those are the two main uh, forms of exercise you get? Yeah. I mean, I take a walk every day. Um, um, sometimes I run in, inside there. Um, that's probably more mental. Yeah. I, I swim uh, half a mile to a mile every day and um, I lift weights or do Pilates. You know, I don't do those both on the same day usually, but um, I started doing Pilates when I was 45 years old and I touched my toes with my legs straight. Um, for the first time in my life when I was, you know, 46. So, and now I can do that every morning. So, um, that's a whole, that's an exercise that I would recommend to, uh, to anybody who wants to, you know, feel younger rather than older as they get older. Out of all the different forms of working out, weightlifting, swimming, running, hiking, whatever it is, I mean, is there like a specific type of exercise that you think affects the overall health more than everything else? Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely swimming. Swimming is the fountain of youth right in your own backyard or local community. You know, you're, you're, it's, it's no impact. It's cardiovascular, using all your muscle groups. You, you know, the, there's research published, I have this in my book, that, um, you know, the, the, the benefits in terms of, uh, you know, breathing regularly and for mental focus and concentration and calmness and are the same uh, as yoga, like you get the same benefit as in swimming as in yoga, that might be different for everybody, but that's what the research says. Master swimmers, those are people who swim, uh, uh, you know, really regularly, at least three times a week for 45 minutes. There's groups of these people and they did a clinical study on those, on that, that group. And they have biological age markers that are 20 years younger, 20 years younger than their peer group that doesn't swim. So, if there's a fountain of youth, it's definitely swimming. There's a pool 
probably about six blocks from here. And I, I think I got to start going now after this. I'm sure everyone listening is going to start too. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 I mean, unless it's, there's a thunderstorm or something, I, I do it every day. So with your experience, you know, what does it take to grow a, a company from 20 million to 50 to 100? Like what are the, the X factors and, and what's the most common thing that you see with big companies that ultimately kill them? Is it their product? Is it their marketing? Like, what do you think that is? Yeah, those are, those are, those are probably two different questions, but they're related for sure. So I would say that, um, a lot of companies can get to that first 10 or $20 million without a great, um, solution. You know, with, with they're not really solving a big problem. Like you can have weaknesses and get to that first for, for, you know, other reasons you got distribution, you know, you had a good, uh, sales force, like you can get to that first 10 or $20 million. And a lot of companies stop there and, you know, they just never get past that. And part of it is kind of how the seeds were planted initially, where it just wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that compelling a solution to a problem that wasn't that big an idea. Um, so I see that a lot. Um, I think that, if you take as an assumption that it's a really good solution and then you protect that solution and there's, there's a lot of ways to screw that up. Technology can change and get replaced. There's a, it's a very competitive dynamic out there. Uh, you can, but if you know that you can stay in touch with those you know, threats, keep improving your technology, keep improving your product. Um, a lot of companies coast. So that's a way that they, they get, you know, they get eclipsed by a competitor is that they take for granted their leader leadership position. Um, you know, I view companies like a garden, right? And, and you have a garden, they're never perfect, but you can cultivate it. And especially if you got some, you know, fruit trees or some trees in that garden that are still growing, you can have a long-term success at gardening and have a better and better garden every year, eventually getting up to that hundred million mark. But you got to keep applying fertilizer. You got to keep the bugs out of it. You got to, you know, you got to, you got to keep the, the, uh, uh, the pruning up. It's not easy. You have to pay attention to it. And, um, if you have a good enough idea, uh, keeping it protected, particularly in the competitive and intellectual property area is critical at the beginning stages of these companies. I would say the most important thing is having a really good sales force or distribution method. Um, and that's specific to products that are, you know, or services that are sold, you know, through those methods, through those methods. Uh, and that gets you kickstarted, but you got to have a good strategy and a good basic premise to get up to those next levels. My dad always says the only way to coast is downhill. That's a great quote. <laughs> it's interesting because if you're not growing, you're dying and kind of stemming off of that, how is the relationship, you know, a lot of times there's a big discrepancy between corporate part of a business and then the field when growing. And sometimes those not being linked well is a big issue. What's the relationship between the corporate part and the field part to grow, say, a $100 million business? They got to be in sync. I mean, the, the, there's always going to be tension between corporate and field in every company. You know, we, we had a sales force at Garden of Life. And, and we had a, obviously a big retail organization, field organization at GNC. And there's always a tension between those groups. Uh, and the, the, the role of a senior manager or an executive manager is to make sure 
that they're still talking, that feedback is still there, and make sure that that they understand that you're going to find solutions that work for both of them. So when I was talking to the field, the field thought that I represented uh, corporate and was 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 you know listening on behalf of corporate and in possibly defending the corporate or explaining the corporate positions on things. But when I went back to corporate, they thought I was an advocate of the field because I was explaining the field point of view back to corporate listening to their concerns. So, so successful management of those companies is a constant uh, interaction and interactivity between the, the, those two, those two functions. Cause there's always going to be a little bit of tension. If you let it build up, it can be toxic. If you don't have dialogue back and forth, um, you're not going to grow and reach your potential. So despite the fact that there's always, you know, a little bit of healthy tension there, um, they have to be uh, constantly communicating and constantly feeling like they're on the same team, even though they have a different, you know, perspective and point of view on on certain issues. Is there like any certain usage of feedback loops that you've used in the past that have worked very well? Yeah, I like to have formal and informal feedback loops. So um, always having a regular monthly or quarterly meeting where people are are, are appointed and represented to communicate with each other formally. So, uh, you know, advisory council type idea or a business review type idea um, is, is really important because um, you can't rely just on the informal channels to work. Uh, in a perfect world, you could, but you got to have some kind of formal program where there's a council and they're meeting and there's a agenda and they come to a building and they meet in person. So that's the, the formal. The informal side of it is probably more important because that's really more what builds trust. But it's also going to be, by its nature, more sporadic because you're not going to have, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to talk to everybody every day. And sometimes you might miss calls or be traveling or whatever. So or get, you know, too much feedback from somebody who's more vocal. But that's not really the whole group's point of view. So um, the informal is important, probably the most important. But you got to have a formal process to back it up so that you're making sure that you're capturing, following through and tapping into the power of the organization to um, to, uh, you know, resolve issues and keep improving. What do you think has a better impact on employee happiness and performance? A philosophy that you need to show up, you need to be at work Monday through Friday at, say, 8 a.m. to 5 o'clock. And if you're not, you get 14 days off that you need to specify and just a very strict, strict policy on that front or a policy of having unlimited paid time off as long as you get your stuff done, do what you want? Like, what do you think is most effective? It really depends. That The answer to that question really depends on the type of function that you're having, not necessarily the type of organization, but the type of function that you're having. So um, if you are in charge of making sure that the um, dials in a steam boiler you know, stay within the green zone so that the boiler doesn't blow the building up and that's your job. You need to be there, you know, at certain times, right? Right. Because otherwise the, the boiler blow up, right? So there's certain, or, or, or watching a front desk so that when somebody comes in to visit the company, they have a smiling face to greet them and, you know, help them out. Like a, like imagine a hotel front desk, right? You can't do that just based on number of guests checked in because you got to have somebody there all the time. Um, for uh, types of jobs that are more performance-based, the most important thing is to establish 
performance uh, expectations and standards, um, which are usually done based on a job class, but should be ultimately done with each employee or each 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 manager, and um, those types of job functions, I would say, my own philosophy is, it doesn't matter. You're not getting paid by the hour, right? Einstein didn't get paid by the hour. Whoever his boss was, I feel sorry for. <laughs> but, but you know, you 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 don't for certain job functions that are creative in nature, um, that are project based, that are measurable in terms of sales delivered, etc. Those types of jobs, it's it's almost a constraint on performance to count the hours when what you really want to do do is count the sales closed or count the you know value added to the intellectual property portfolio of a company or the cases one if you're an attorney yeah it's funny you mentioned the check-in at the hotel because that's one of our missions at trueface is to use facial recognition to check in so we eliminate the front desk <laughs> well that, that would change my advice in that case uh, for that specific instance but uh I wouldn't change my advice for the steam boiler because I think I want somebody there turning the valve off. <laughs> Amen to that. So with all the nutrients out there and all the nutrition products, I mean, health and wellness is probably the most important industry in the world. Where do you see nutrition five to 10 years out from now? You know, I see the uh, continued evolution of, of science validating where nutrition can help and where it can't. And that's a really exciting prospect for me. If you just look at the gut microbiome, you know, we used to think that the best thing you could do was use antibiotics and just kill everything in there because antibiotics have saved so many lives. That was right. I mean, it's great that we have antibiotics, but now they're finding out that those 10 trillion microbes in your gut, 10 times more cells than you have as a human, are actually really important to a bunch of different biological functions. And so just wiping out the rainforest isn't all good. You got to rebuild it afterwards. And it's it, and so that field of science is brand new. So there's other fields of science, how the cell generates energy, and some of the things I've already talked about that are just starting. Our scientific understanding is very young in them, but they have massive implications on how they can help, you know, prevent and avoid uh, health problems that today are big deals. And so I think that the science is going to keep validating that over the next. Um, well, maybe way more than 10 years, let's call it the rest of my career and, uh, and beyond. And as that does, it's going to point to new opportunities for m even more effective nutrition products that people can benefit from. So it's, a, it's an exciting time to be in the specialty nutrition category. Do you think that there's a certain um, health problem, say it's like high blood pressure or high cholesterol that you think is going to see a significant decrease over the next five to 10 years because of nutrition advances? I would imagine that this whole field of uh, gut health problems, there's, there's a bunch of different conditions, um, is going to be revolutionized by our new understanding of the microbiome. Um, and I think that this whole, the, the fields of um, uh, metabolic uh, syndromes and you know, slow down in metabolism and, and errors in metabolism that happen as you get older. Um, I think that field is going to be revolutionized with better uh, sensors and better interventions, nutritional interventions that have a feedback loop with the sensors. So if you're able to tell that if you did this, your blood sugar did that or your hormone level did that on a more instant basis, I think it's going to really revolutionize the way that we can think about using nutrition as a kind of a middle step between food and 
and drugs. I, I got an economics degree at UNH, but I almost kind of wish I got a nutrition degree um, because I just feel like it's one of the most relevant, easily ap like applied solution that you could learn in school. Um, I know growing up, I pretty much lived off of cereal and corn toasties and definitely tons of high fructose corn syrup. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know our whole generation growing up was drink milk. Milk is good for you. If you don't drink milk, you're going to not have strong bones. What's your philosophy on drinking milk? Um, you know, I think, um, you know, milk is really great for kids um, if you're not allergic to it. Um, and most adults around the world don't drink milk, cow's milk. Um, so my own philosophy is um, that I uh, eat every morning some uh, a, a bowl of goat yogurt with chia seeds in it. And the reason I eat goat dairy products is because the molecule it's first of all they're the most widely consumed dairy products in the world um goat and secondly the, the the fat molecule is much easier to digest in goat milk and the um that doesn't have some of the inflammatory uh proteins that are in cow's milk uh, that that cause inflammation in your body so that's a personal philosophy i think milk is good for kids and probably did give you stronger bones um but as an adult I switched over to goat milk. Goat milk with chia seeds. Do you throw on any berries or is that it? Blueberries. Oh, I love them. Unless blueberries aren't available organic and then blackberries. That's a whole nother debate. With all the options for buying food, it's like one of the best benefits I feel like these days of being successful and, and having a good income and a lifestyle is you're able to buy organic. I mean, it costs to buy organic. It sure does. Is that like a very well-regulated industry in your mind? Like if I go to... Ralph's or Vons or Trader Joe's and it says organic versus non is that always gonna be organic or is there things to look out for or what's how do you know you're really getting the good stuff yeah I mean organic is really important because there's you know the chemicals are not used that are that are pesticides and herbicides that can be damaging to your body so keep doing that um, uh, you know when, when we first when I first started in organic uh, was quite a while ago there were 31 different certifiers for organic products. So it was kind of a free-for-all. And it's one of the few cases of industry actually going to the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, and said, uh, you know, create a seal, like consolidate all these things so that, um, you know, people can trust the seal. And so if you see that USDA organic seal, those standards are, are solid. That's a, kind of a brand by itself nowadays, and it's a very well-organized brand. You can trust whether, regardless of where you're buying it, if it has that USD organic seal, it's the real deal. The other thing I hear a lot of questions about, and I, and I wrote about this in my book, Living Green, was, you know, I can't afford, you know, all organic food. I'm on a budget, so what should I start with? And I identify top foods to buy organic, things like meats that are high in the food chain, you know, dairy, because the fat absorbs chemicals if it's... Uh, you know, where, 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 what, what the animal's eating, fish, which, you know, aren't really strictly organic, but wild fish are better. Anything with a leaf or a, or a skin that you're eating, like berries and salad crops and mushrooms, those are really important bananas. Those are really important to buy organic because that's where the pesticide or herbicide is sprayed kind of directly on the part you eat. And that's what you really want to avoid. I know you mentioned the garden reference earlier with growing a business. Do you personally have a garden? I do. And it's organic. Nice. Is this like, is it your baby? Is it like, do you only eat from your garden? No, no, no. It's really hard to grow um, enough enough organic produce. I'm, I have new respect for uh, organic produce at the market. 
and I'm willing to pay for it now that I try to grow some of my own. Um, but we have all kinds of, uh, we have trees and, and, and also some, some planter boxes. So I have mangoes and papayas and ginger and all kinds of good stuff, uh, star fruit, um, uh, bananas, you know, growing in my yard. I'm lucky to live where I live. Um, yeah, so we have, a, we have a good time with it, but there's no way that I'm skilled enough as a organic gardener to <laughs> eat exclusively from, <laughs> even if I had a much bigger garden, I'm just, it's harder than you think. So, so, so throw a big shout out respect to those organic farmers out there. In my last uh, apartment, we had a avocado tree on just in the apartment, like complex. And we would have fresh avocados like several times, and it was just night and day different tasting. Pretty cool. I felt like it was so good. Yeah, I have I have an avocado tree on my property that has a beehive in it. So like we're literally <laughs> doing it all the old natural way there. Um, but we don't get too many avocados; they're a little more rare for us. That is cool. Is there a certain foods? If you just had to name like three foods that everybody you would recommend eating every single day to have the highest return on your health, would you recommend? Yeah. I mean, I kind of hinted at it. Um, I'm just going to take my breakfast as an example so we don't have to go through every meal and that I eat in a day, but I would, this is something I eat every single day and it's, it's, it's goat yogurt, which has probiotics and protein and all the good things that are in goat dairy and chia seeds, which have fiber and protein and healthy fats. And I, I soak them cause they, they, they absorb um, I mix it up like a half hour before I eat it because they absorb, um, it absorbs moisture and becomes easier to digest and eat. And blueberries, which are rich in antioxidants. And, you know, the more research comes out of blueberries, I wish I could put those into a pill <laughs> because <laughs> they're, they're just, they're good for um, just about everything you can think of from digestion to cognitive function to keeping your heart healthy. So, um, those would be the three foods. And those are three that I put together in my breakfast every day. So before I leave the house, I've got that. You know, I try to get a lot of fiber every day. The average American only gets 15 grams of fiber. The USDA, that's the United States Department of Agriculture recommends 30 grams. And I try to get more than that. And, uh, you know, that serving of chia seeds alone gives me six or seven grams of fiber. The blueberries add a couple grams. So I'm, you know, walking out the door with, uh, at least a third of what I need um, for the day in terms of fiber. I've heard that one of the best health drinks you can drink is um, water with apple cider vinegar, turmeric, uh, ground ginger, and lemon. Have you heard that? And do you recommend that? Yeah, it's good. Um, I've I've made those types of things before. Um, we keep a lot of fresh ginger around. We grow ginger, um, although we buy more ginger than we grow, um, and. Um, I got apple cider vinegar, you know, half a bottle sitting in my fridge right now. Um, it'll make your eyes water if you drink it straight. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Clear your head. Right. But I don't need to be drinking that every day. Well, I mean, it's it, probably not every day, but, um, if you want to like really kind of get going that that'll, that'll get your juices flowing. So with all of the different fad diets out there, I know there's so many when you think of keto, you know, vegetarian, paleo, Mediterranean, etc. How are you out of everything you've done? Is there one that reigns supreme versus another? Or what do you think is the best diet and the healthiest diet for someone out there with everything you've learned in health and nutrition? That's a great question. And, and I'm not a big fan of fad diets. I think that diets tend to get... Um, 
uh, uh, overhyped um, without much science behind them most of the time uh, on these trends. There is one diet, though, that is the best studied, most scientifically validated way of eating in the world as, as the healthiest way of eating in the world. And um, it's super, super, super clear cut. It's the Mediterranean diet. So uh, it's, it's been around for at least 5,000 years. Uh, and, you know, it's rich in fiber, as we've been talking about. Uh, it's got some lean protein in that, a lot of vegetables, um, and a lot of olive oil, which is a healthy fat. And it's been validated by science. So the, the, there's been a bunch of studies done on it. Two of them that were published that are, that are really large scale. Um, one was the Lyon Heart Study. Uh, which which followed people for five years and found a fifty percent reduction in you know markers like cardiovascular markers, but also in death. And then the the other one that you might have heard about, um, which is more recent, uh, last few years, is called the Predimed study. And that was done in Spain with seven thousand four hundred forty seven people over five years, and they found a thirty percent reduction in stroke, cardiovascular events, um, things that really are the major lifestyle killers in our country reduced in the Mediterranean diet group versus the control group. And the things they looked at as markers for whether they were sticking to the Mediterranean diet were hydroxytyrosol, which is in uh, olive oil and uh, as, as one of the main markers. So that's a powerful plant-based antioxidant. So, so the Mediterranean diet is hands down the most scientifically validated and studied healthiest way of eating in the world. And I eat that way because it's absolutely delicious and you don't have to feel like you're, you know, suffering or sacrificing to eat that way. It just feels like you're eating really good, wholesome, live, healthy food. Is there a certain particular set of ingredients or chemical compounds that just absolutely fascinate you? Like you just can't get enough about learning and studying them? Well, actually, hydroxytyrosol is, is one of them. So that's a, an antioxidant from olives. It's in the oil, but it's also in the pulp and the olive water. And it is um, what's known as a universal antioxidant. So it's active in both the fat and water-soluble tissues of your body. Um, so and, and antioxidants are important because they protect um, things, cells from damage, particularly nerve cells in the case of hydroxytyrosol. So if you look at the antioxidant, antioxidants is an area that's been fascinating me for 20 years. And, and I, I'm even more fascinated with the antioxidants that are in the Mediterranean diet because we don't, we're not sure what, where all the health benefits come from. You know, some of it's the fiber, some of it's the fresher food, but some of it's got to be from the antioxidants. And so, you know, there's a fat-soluble antioxidant in the Mediterranean diet from tomatoes called lycopene, which is, uh, protects your skin and protects, is protective in the, in the more fat, fatty areas of your cells. And there's a, there's a, a water-soluble antioxidant in red wine called resveratrol, and resveratrol is a very potent antioxidant. It can even, uh, in some research, shows that it can even uh, activate your your longevity genes. So um, we don't know exactly the the key to the Mediterranean diet, but I'm fascinated by those three key antioxidants that are very rich in the Mediterranean diet. Plus, plus obviously the a lot of fiber in it. I'm so glad you just brought up red wine because I was going to try to think of how I can ask that question without it being totally left field. So would you say red, like a glass of wine a day is good for you? Yeah. I mean, I can only go off what the research says because remember I, I spend my time in science-based nutrition and, you know, if you're, you know, an alcoholic or have that in your family or whatever, like you gotta, if you got to be careful of alcohol in general, then, 
you know, you shouldn't be drinking any wine. But if, if not, the research says that red wine in moderation um, improves a lot of markers of health from uh, including, you know, longevity, uh, heart health parameters. There's lots of uh, things that are documented in published clinical research that are positive from red wine. And, you know, they don't know whether it's the moderate alcohol or the the polyphenols, which are the antioxidant components like resveratrol in wine. They haven't really narrowed it down that far, but they know that moderate red wine um, is health helpful for those who are not at risk of uh, alcohol abuse. Greg, there's two questions that I always like to end uh, any episode with. If you just got out of college, you know, knowing everything you know now, what if you could tell yourself three things, if you could go back in time, whisper in your ear, like, yo, Greg, watch out for this, this, and this. Like, what would you have told yourself if you could go back in time to just even, you know, better your life, better your career, better your relationships, anything? What would those that advice be to your past self? Of what to avoid? Uh, it doesn't. It's very open-ended. Uh, maybe not to what to avoid or what to be better at or what to focus on. Like, what advice would you give yourself fresh out of college for what you know now? All right. Well, well number one, I would say, and I, I took this advice, but I started taking this advice for myself several years after college, which is really doing what you like to do, like match up that natural interest and enthusiasm for something with, um, with your, you know, with your profession, because you spend so much time at work and you give it so much of your mental energy that it's really tough to not like what you do. Right. So that would be number one. And I eventually did, um, you know, did take that advice. Um, <laughs> eventually, um, Number two, um, I would say, uh, is to, is to stick with your plan. So, so when you're trying to establish yourself right out of college, you're not really sure, you know, kind of, there's a lot of uncertainties, right? Where are you going to live and what are you going to do and who you going to work for and all that stuff. And it's easy to change plans a lot. I mean, I change plans for the better, but, um, it's, 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 it's good advice that I would give myself to, Stay with your plan. Once you figure out what you really the field you want to work in, stay with your plan, and um, and in so doing, get close to the revenue. So when I was working in a more of a staff job, um, you know, I felt like I was on a team, but I didn't really feel like there was a way to advance as far as when you're in charge of some kind of form of what the company actually does, which in in the case of the, of the later companies was sell things to people. Right, and so if you can get somehow closely associated with the revenue of a company, that would be good advice. And then this is more life advice, but I think it affects um, it affects um, you know your performance, and that is living where you want to live. So I live now where I want to live, and that's made a really big difference in my whole mentality. So living where um, you know geography that you prefer, um, do that early. So, and then the last question, and I, this is really holds dear to everyone that's listening right now. And it's something that if there's one thing I wish that everybody that listened to any of these podcasts would accomplish is what would you say to someone right now that is working, say a nine to five in a job they may like, they may not like, um, but they're really not doing what they love. They're just kind of coasting and they might be listening to this podcast right now and thinking, wow, 
I could do that. I could get into nutrition. I could get into the field. Or maybe they're starting to look at starting their own business or starting their own home-based business or becoming an entrepreneur. What would you say to that person that is just on the cuff of making that jump? I would say that make sure that you're uh, make sure you're passionate about it and make sure that you are uh, you're you're doing it, uh, understanding what you're what you, what the trade-offs are. So the reason I say that is that a lot of people think they're going to start a business and they don't understand the trade-offs. So it's important that you're going to be working more hours and you're not going to have as much time off at the first and all that stuff. So I like to understand what it's going to what, what what's involved and then do it with both feet. Don't try to figure out what's involved afterwards. Try to do your homework up front. And once you're committed, stay committed. Amazing. So you got the newest book, Living Well, Six Pillars for Living Your Best Life. Can I find that on Audible? I think so. It's definitely on Amazon. I believe it's on Audible as well. Awesome. For everyone that's listening, we got to all read that book. I'm stoked to, stoked to jump into it. I'm going to order it as soon as this is over. But uh, Greg, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. I know how valuable your time is and I appreciate you as a mentor and as a friend. So thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. A pleasure, Ian. I've, I, I love spending time with you and I appreciate your interest in talking to me. All right. You're the man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.